Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Holger Dressler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Joy Schultz, professor of history at Metropolitan Community College in Omaha, Nebraska, about her new book, Hawaiian by Birth, Missionary Children, Bicultural Identity and U.S. Colonialism in the Pacific, published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2017. A little bit about the book. Um, Schultz's book, Hawaiian by Birth, um, talks about 12 companies of American missionaries who were sent to the Hawaiian Islands between 1819 and 1848 with the goal of spreading American Christianity and New England values. By the mid-19th century, American missionary families had birthed more than 250 white children considered Hawaiian subjects by the indigenous monarchy and U.S. citizens by missionary parents. Schultz's book explores the tensions among the competing parental, cultural, and educational interests affecting these children, and in turn, the impact that children had on 19th century U.S. foreign policy. Joy Schultz, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Holger. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Sure. Joy, I wonder if you could begin by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself. Yes, I was born and raised in Nebraska, and I'm actually still here in Nebraska after doing a bit of traveling and attending university outside of our state. I came back here to be with family and to start to raise my own family with my husband. And yes, Nebraska, I know you're thinking, is a long ways from Hawaii, and that is very (laughs) true. And so you're probably wondering why I'm writing a book about Hawaii. And I do have some wonderful mentors in my life at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln that I want to mention. And uh, the fact that they were in my life at the exact time that I was pursuing Uh, My doctorate is just, it's providential, and it helped me immensely to feel like I was on the right path in pursuing advanced education, even in the very center and heart of the country. And one of those mentors um, is Tim Borstelman. He was my dissertation advisor. He had taught along Walter Lefebvre at Cornell University before coming to Nebraska. And if you know Walter Lefebvre, who just recently passed, he is one of the foremost scholars in what is known as the Wisconsin School of Foreign Relations History. And Margaret Jacobs was another one at the University of Nebraska. She is a recent recipient of the Bancroft Prize. She wrote White Mother to a Dark Race. And she was another one of my instrumental mentors who helped me think about foreign policy, the United States, international relations, comparative world history, all of those things that were so interesting and important to me. They taught me how to honestly turn them on their heads and look at them in a different way. And that's um, one of the reasons that I was able to pick up a topic that seemed immense at the time and look at it in what I hope readers will find a different way. Great. Uh, That's very interesting, uh, that background, uh, your training in U.S. foreign relations. Um, uh, And Hawaii, of course, uh, would play a a big role in 19th century U.S. foreign relations. So um, let me follow up with that and and ask you, how did you come to write then actually about white missionary children in Hawaii in the 19th century? Because there are so many different topics, even in Hawaiian U.S. relations in the 19th century. So why, why white missionary children in particular? So it came down to actually two very personal reasons and bear with me because they don't necessarily have anything immediate to do with Hawaii, but I was teaching at a university in Omaha, Nebraska while I was working on my doctorate and there were a lot of students who were what sociologists would call third culture children. So their parents were American. They were born and raised in countries outside of the United States. And then they were coming back actually to Omaha, Nebraska to attend university. And for many of them, Mm -hmm. this was the first time they had ever lived in the United States. And these students that I had in my classroom were fascinating to me. I thought they had such a unique perspective on Americans, on culture, on politics. And I just was so interested in their upbringing and how that came about. So I started looking at this issue called third culture children and um, then looking for places in the world where that might be something that I could study further. 
The second personal story involves dear friends of ours who, after 9-11, actually decided to take their three children at the time and move to Kabul, Afghanistan to teach at an international school in the middle mm-hmm. of a war zone. And wow. they actually had a baby over there while they were there for seven years. So they had four children living in Afghanistan for seven years. And what was interesting about that was the amount of criticism they received when they announced that they were going. And I mean, of course, there were concerns about their safety, but that wasn't the main reason that people criticized their leaving their the country. The main reason that people criticized them leaving the United States is because they were going to be raising their children in a culture that was not American, that was not the United States. And I also found that fascinating, wondering why would people be concerned about that? What would the ramifications of being born into another culture be on their children? And why wouldn't that be a good thing? I personally was shocked by that reaction. And all of that was happening about the same time I was having my own children. And when I was writing my dissertation, I had my two daughters, they were ages one and three. It was somewhat of a nightmare trying to find time to write, as you can imagine. But um, I it just <laughs> it was an excuse to think about all issues related to child psychology and human development and education and all of the topics I try to explore in my book. So it was a bunch of forces inevitably coming together to give me this idea. But the actual sources on the ground I found were actually in the Hawaiian Islands. And one of the problems with children's history is that there's a lot of people that want to do children's history, but there's not a lot of source material. In other Mm -hmm. words, there's not a lot of source material that can lead you to large conclusions. You can do micro history, you can write about, you know, individual people or maybe a school or what have you. But historians of children are generally limited by a lack of source material, material or using material about children written again by other adults. And so when I found out that there were these highly literate, early educated missionary children in the hundreds who had left documents and journals and school papers and letters and all sorts of material that a historian would fall in love with in an actual library that they funded, (laughs) that they and their descendants Mm -hmm. to today continue to fund, I thought, okay, that's where I'm going to start. And I mean, I didn't even, I probably only, I don't even want to guess how much of the archive actually got through. There's so much more. And at one point, uh, Dr. Borstelman, my dissertation advisor said, okay, is everything that you're now reading saying the same thing? And I said, well, pretty much, but I still want to read it. He said, no, you need to start writing. (laughs) And that's when I stopped reading and started focusing on the actual project. That's a good time to to start writing, because um, uh, it's a good sign that you've kind of exhausted that particular source <laughs> base at least for now. Uh, that's great. So um, that took us right right to Hawaii already. Then, um, so tell us a little bit more about the the general topic, the time frame, some of the numbers involved, and mentioned uh, over two hundred of these white missionary children born in the first half of the of the nineteenth century. Um, Tell us a little bit more about what their experiences were like, you know, why why New England missionaries actually, you know, went all the way to Hawaii in the first place. Let's start there. So, yes. Yeah, so the New England missionaries that went to Hawaii were some of the founding members of um, the ABCF, ABCFM, and that stands for the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. And this was the first truly Protestant missionary fundraising organization in the United States that really took a lot of cues and a lot of insight from similar organizations in England at the same time. And so there's a lot of dialogue between England and the United States at this time. There's a lot of lessons learned and there's a lot of essentially wheeling and dealing in terms of where people are going to go and where they're not going to go based on national origin and international relations. But the ABCFM had had some early failures in the American West, and their initial hopes were to essentially evangelize Native Americans living in the Western United States and then maybe train um, travelers, so visitors to the United States, in evangelical missionary principles and send them back to their home com- their home countries. And in 
Hawaii. Mm -hmm. That was the plan until one of the earliest Hawaiians who had traveled to the United States for an education actually died a very untimely death and prompted essentially the ABCFM to say, okay, we're going to go. We're going to go in his place because he couldn't. And of course, he felt like many Hawaiians to uh, foreign diseases that, you know, Native Hawaiians had no immunities to protect them from. And so that was really the impetus for the first American missionaries to travel to the Hawaiian Islands, because, of course, English Protestant missionaries had already traveled to Tahiti. And so this was the next sort of ground that Americans had heard of as being Polynesian, decadent, sexual, heathen, etc. And it looks like as good a place as any for those American missionaries to travel. Now that sounds maybe a little bit lighthearted, but in actuality, these missionaries were the real deal. They sold everything that they owned. They paid back all debts. They got married if they weren't married because the ABCFM would not have allowed them to travel as single males or females. And so they mm -hmm. were serious about traveling to the Hawaiian Islands and never returning to the United States. And it was a six month trip there and letters took six months to get back to family members. And so they were serious about moving their entire lives, their livelihoods to the Hawaiian Islands. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, so we're in the early 19th century at this at this point in the 1820s, I think, um, is when the, the first New England missionaries arrive in Hawaii. Um, what about the children then? I think you write mm -hmm. that the children were born almost immediately after um, the, the missionaries have uh, arrived. So this first generation of children born in the 1820s and then into the 1830s. Uh, tell us a little bit more about these, these children. What was what was their life, their early childhoods like? Yes. Yeah, so that is fascinating to me that of the original company, all of them had all of the wives had had a child within the first year of their arrival in the Hawaiian mm -hmm. Islands. And none of them had thought about what that meant. And what's fascinating is that immediately after having children, all of a sudden missionary parents are somewhat freaking out about what they're going to do with their children. And if you're a parent, you know that, of course, a newborn baby sort of takes control of your world for a period of time and is utterly dependent upon you. And then all of your thoughts turn to providing for the education, the health, the future of that child. So these missionaries were no different than, for example, a modern day parent in needing and wanting to provide for their children. But the interesting part about them is that these missionaries wanted to do it in a way that would not detract in any way from what they believed was their primary calling, which was to evangelize the Hawaiians. And that was a calling that included increasingly the female missionaries because it was largely the children, the Hawaiian children and the Hawaiian women who the female missionaries were able to establish schools for and teach liter literacy as well as the Bible. So what to do with mm -hmm. their kids became extremely problematic because essentially nobody wanted to take care of them. But they also did not trust Native Hawaiians to do so either because, again, this was an unchristian culture that they were trying to change. Right. Um, you do, I think, have the the quote from Sanford B. Dole, um, one of the important um, missionary sons um, who would go on to become the first president of the Hawaiian Republic in the in the, in the late 19th century. Um, you say uh, that Dole once once wrote, uh, "I am of American blood, but Hawaiian milk," um, sort of referencing the fact that Native Hawaiian. Uh, wet nurses and uh, other domestic workers were actually part of these uh, missionary households. So let's talk a little bit more about this kind of uh, division <laughs> of labor in these missionary households. Oh. This, I think that was a fascinating aspect. So let me just say that some of the problems with this topic from the outset, and I'll just, it, it was such a wonderful book to write, but I'm going to just acknowledge up front that I'm not Native Hawaiian, and who writes for Native Hawaiians today is an extremely political and contentious topic. So I was very much aware of that going into the project. I'm also not a missionary, and I'm not 
a scholar who is frequently recognized or published in what would be considered, you know, church history or missionary history. And I was mm-hmm. also very conscious that that was probably not going to happen with this book either. And so I wanted to be respectful of all of the different aspects of this project that I wasn't representing while I was trying to essentially do something new, which was, in my mind, giving the children their own voice from almost the time of you know their early learning, if not a little bit before, all the mm-hmm. way through adulthood. And so my foremost responsibility in my mind was to to try to honor the children in terms of their life, their thoughts, their legacy. Not that it was necessarily positive or negative, but just to do it well. And um, so in that sense, some of the other aspects of the book um, do come out somewhat critical of the missionary endeavor as, you know, other books have over the years. But I think it's it's interesting because these missionaries were faced with dilemmas that I think are very modern in the sense of, do you give up your career for a child? Do you move to a different neighborhood in order to get into a better school, a school district for your children? Um, do you control what friends your children play with? What about college? Do you position them in the best possible schools so that they can get into the best possible universities? These are literally the questions that missionaries are thinking about on the other side of the world. And the reason that they're thinking about them is that the ABCFM was a Presbyterian and Congregationalist missionary endeavor. And to become a missionary in those two Christian denominations, you had to have a seminary degree. You had to be highly educated. And most of Mm -hmm. these male missionaries came from Harvard and Yale. And the wives came from female seminaries. So their expectations for the children were very, very high. Not to mention that Puritan background where until you're able to read the Bible, you're, you're, you know, considered somewhat subject to falling into sin at, you know, any corner that you turn. So these children are born into this tremendously pressure-filled environment where their parents are wanting to be doing something else. So again, Sanford Dole is, his mother did die during childbirth, but his father remarried, but he is raised for his first couple of years and nursed by a native Hawaiian. And yet the common missionary assumption was that as soon as your child starts to talk or mimic English words or even Hawaiian words, God forbid, you take away any sort of contact that they may have previously had with a native Hawaiian. Well, imagine that. Imagine your point of contact for the first formative years of your life being a native Hawaiian wet nurse, and then one day you're not allowed to see or speak to that person ever again. I mean, these are the types of choices that these parents are making, because the assumption was once you could learn to speak, you can't let your child be around Hawaiian because they might hear things that are heathen. So you don't want them to learn the language so that they understand those heathen things. It's a very controlled environment that the parents are trying to um, put their children within. And eventually that's going to you know, blow up somewhat in their faces and those children are going to react. That's fascinating to me. So I just wanted to follow up on that on that point and introduce the um, the the concept of settler colonialism into this. You have a section um, towards the beginning of the book where you talk about familial colonialism, mm-hmm. and I found that quite fascinating to think about settler colonialism as a family affair, um, which it of course is because the settlers come there to stay, and um, to you know start new. Um, societies uh, uh, that might, you know, at some point supplant the indigenous societies. So if you understand Hawaii and um, uh, missionary and then also later, um, you know, non-missionary Euro-American settler colonialism on the islands in that way uh, through this familiar lens, um, I'm wondering uh, what what the result might be. So, uh, um, you say that these average missionary families had six to seven children, which mm-hmm. is huge. Um, um, I don't know how it compares sort of at the time in the early 19th century, uh, maybe not as extraordinary, but um, this is uh, sort of a maybe not intentional, but a quite explicit um, 
biopolitical or settler colonial, you know, ambition uh, to have, you know, lots of children in this new in this new place. Um, so, uh, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about this? Maybe a little bit more critical view also of these these missionaries who had, I think, you know, um, good intentions, but then with all of these children and then the children having other ideas, um, <laughs> things got quite quite complicated over the course of the 19th century. Yes, I think that you're absolutely right when you say maybe it wasn't planned or, I mean, we look at it and we, we look at the past and we say, oh my goodness, what were they thinking? This is inevitable. It's not going to necessarily end well. And yet the missionaries, at least the American missionaries, were somewhat naive and idealistic. And in U.S. foreign policy, we have a lot of scholars who are working in studying what we would call informal empire. And we might maybe in some ways, you know, counteract the idea of empire by using that term informal with what perhaps the British empire was doing at the same time or what the French might be doing a little bit later in history. And mm -hmm. when the missionaries arrived, yes, they were having children at a very healthy rate. And those children were extremely healthy in terms of their birth and survival rates. But if you were back in New England, you would be apprenticing out your children as soon as they were able, and um, you would be preparing them for a career where they would not be dependent upon you. And in the Hawaiian Islands, that is immediately a concern. It's where are they going to work? How are they going to get paid? How are they going to be trained for a profession? And if they don't want to be missionaries and want to go back to the United States and they're uneducated, what's going to happen to them? So these are things that they did not consider before they left and all of a sudden they become huge issues. And the parents are somewhat, I think they're actually pretty honest about this. They're like, we don't want our children to necessarily pay the price for our sacrifice. Why should they have to sacrifice their futures because we've chosen this particular lifestyle? And it's an interesting question because the missionaries were not necessarily going to give up their lifestyle, but they really wanted society. And by society, I mean the Hawaiian kingdom, But they also wanted society, meaning the ABCFM board and donors to take care of their children for them. And so mm -hmm. the foreign policy implications is that while the missionaries did not start out wanting to be settlers in the sense that they were content to be considered subjects of the Hawaiian monarchy, they didn't own land. They were gifted particular portions of land to use by the king. Um, they didn't question those issues. They weren't trying to change the government until their children started to become at an age where they became worried about their ability to provide for themselves. And then you have questions like, shouldn't they be able to own land? Shouldn't they be paid a wage? Shouldn't they have a better school system than the indigenous schools here? Because those are really Hawaiian language schools. And our children needed, need to be educated in Greek Latin, Hebrew, and English. And so you have these dichotomies that the missionary parents, while they're so stressed in all their letters about the futures of their children, don't really seem to grapple with implications as it as they extend to themselves, if that makes sense. Right. Um, so this is one of your central arguments that the white missionary children paved the way for U.S. colonialism in Hawaii. And um, I just wanted to have you speak more a little bit ab about that. Mm -hmm. um, the the children end up. Uh, I think this this generation of these missionary children um, is fascinating because uh, you know, as you said, they haven't been studied as much, but mm -hmm. they have a lot of things in common in, in the sense that they support U.S. annexation towards the end of the 19th century. Then, um, because partly out of familiar re reasons that they believe that the U.S. had abandoned their parents and left the missionary project incomplete. As you as you write, um, tell us a little bit more about that. Uh, it's quite a, it's a personal story for the for the families themselves. Some parents were kind of disappointed that their children wouldn't become missionaries themselves. Very few did. Um, but then this kind of first uh, Hawaiian-born um, generation of children had their own ideas. Um, so, um, what do, what did we make of that? Tell us a little bit more about that uh, that tension. Yes, and that, that is the tension. It is um, missionary children on the whole rejected their parents' lifestyles, their parents' sacrifice and commitment to 
spreading the gospel to the native Hawaiian population. They rejected that on its really on it in its entirety and instead came up with an alternate plan that allowed them to pursue professional and educative goals um, that ended up becoming extremely political um, as the 19th century continued. And I would have to say that I, I really found no evidence that the missionary parents actually supported their children in those political goals. The idea of overthrowing the Hawaiian monarchy was not something the missionaries wanted or entertained. And as the second and third generation of missionary children grew into adulthood, you tend to have them all, with very few exceptions, coalescing around this new political idea, one that they had not inherited from their parents. And what's interesting about that is that many of the children had been sent back in the early years to the United States to be educated. And you're talking about kids as young as five years old who are being sent back with siblings who are seven years old by themselves on a ship for six months to go live with strangers because that's how much parents distrusted the Hawaiian culture. That's how much they wanted their children to uh, be rescued from it, so to speak. But then as they continued to prod the missionary organization and its donors to found a school for them, for their children in the islands, those children began to stay. But that school, of course, was Punahou School, and Americans know that school by name, uh, if only because, you know, former President Barack Obama was a graduate of Punahou, and it's mm -hmm. still an excellent school in the Hawaiian Islands, a wonderful school. But originally, it was founded as a missionary children-only school, so whites only. And that school became basically a breeding ground for the future political ideologies of these children. And then when students who were abroad, for example, getting educated in New England boarding schools, came back to the Hawaiian Islands, and many of them did come back, surprisingly, they too coalesced around this group of peers. And what linked them together was not so much where they had been educated, although many were educated at Punahou, what linked them together was that they were white, that they were descendants of this hero generation, as many Americans looked at the earliest missionaries, that they were educated and that they believed they had been raised to leadership positions, that if they weren't gonna be missionaries like their parents, which they didn't want to be, they were somehow to lead Hawaiian society because of course, that's what was required of a white settler in 19th century Hawaii, and that was to be a leader and to be a mentor and an example, essentially, to the Native Hawaiians. And one of the reasons that they were able to grab on to this idea of leadership and even this idea of settler colonialism, which becomes extremely popular and extremely lucrative as an idea by the middle of the century with Kamehameha III's basically uh, Great Mahale, which is the division of land amongst his people, opening the way for private land ownership for the first time. These ideas become lucrative and powerful because of changes in the Hawaiian islands that were largely instigated by their parents for them, for the children. So this great inheritance, as they often call it in their writings and their speeches, is that they were born to rule, they were born to lead. And the idea that this seems natural is also aided by the fact that Native Hawaiians are dying out at alarming rates because of foreign diseases. And this doesn't just begin with the first American missionaries in 1820. It begins, you know, with syphilis that's brought by Captain Cook's crew on the very first voyage to discover the Cook Islands and the Sandwich Islands and, you know, Tahiti and all these Polynesian locales. Every step of the way, English, French, Spanish, and then American, lastly, sailors are bringing with them foreign epidemics. And you see that the population rates in Polynesia, the decline of population is the same as it was with Christopher Columbus and Hernando Cortez and the earliest Spaniards who came to the Americas. It's between 85 and 95%. And those numbers to American missionaries, sadly, seem providential. 
as their efforts are kind of petering out by the middle of the century and their children are coming into adulthood, they're thinking, okay, well, we did our best, but maybe the wine population isn't going to be around for very long. And maybe instead we're raising up a community of white saints that will be this, you know, Pacific beacon of hope, this crossroads that will allow countries from all over the world to, again, marvel at our, you know, Puritan heritage, our Puritan example. And so it's, it's just the ability of both the adults and the children as adults to sort of twist the meaning of what's going on around them to their own benefit, which, you know, is a fairly human thing to do. So I'm not saying that we don't do it. I'm just saying that the ramifications of these decisions are just tremendous for the Hawaiian people, tremendously damaging. And I mean, if you know anything about Hawaiian political history today, the wounds are fresh and they're deep and they have not gone away. Right. And you, you do cite uh, some Native Hawaiian scholars who, uh, you know, somebody like Trask would say, we don't really care studying about studying these mission, <laughs> white missionary children. Um, they, uh, they are, you know, kind of the, the spear of the, the settler colonial project. And um, uh, they would say, well, you know, whatever family, you know, um, trouble goes on within those settler families, uh, that's that's not actually, you know, sort of part of, of Native Hawaiian history and um, um, and so forth. So I wanted to like uh, continue on the, in that vein with one, one more question, then we move on to other things as well. Um, since you mentioned these uh, New England uh, Puritan descended missionaries um, and making their arguments about uh, sort of the providential um, uh, placement uh, of of their of their kin in in these new settler colonies. Um, so in some ways, uh, I feel the the uh, New England missionaries in Hawaii are kind of replaying um, uh, episodes of 200 years earlier when they when they had arrived in you know northeastern uh, New, uh, North America, what would become New England. They made similar arguments about Native Americans. Um, Uh, being exposed to uh, uh, you know, old world diseases uh, with a huge mortality rate um, as a sort of providential sign that the that the uh, the new settlers would actually uh, be there to inherit this this widowed land. Um, so uh, in some ways, it's kind of an echo of this of this uh, early 17th century um, discourse, um, which complicates, I think, the picture. Right? Like uh, if you're then a white missionary uh, moving yet to another, you know, place. Um, across another ocean, um, uh, is are you just being naive or, or a good <laughs> parent, or shouldn't shouldn't you know better, right? And missionaries, I think, had a, I think, uh, you know, they knew their history. They, I think, they knew quite well what they were what they were doing, and that they would have children who might, you know, come to this place um, or at least challenge the. Uh, Native Hawaiian, like political economic systems and so forth. So um, I see this as a form of, of nativism and other scholars have, mm -hmm. have called that uh, as such as, as well. So it's not just, you know, anti, you know, um, uh, immigrant rhetoric, but nativism in the sense that settlers create a form of um, relationship uh, that is imposed on indigenous societies mm -hmm. and they define themselves as actually native too. Um the uh, the the places that they that they settle on, um, and I think the the missionary children in Hawaii are quite interesting in that regard. Mm -hmm. They call themselves, I think, exiles. You say when they're in the United States, and um, uh, uh, expatriates, strangers, and and Hawaiians um, as they are in the United States. So that's, I think a good, good piece of evidence to say that they're actually sort of imposing them, their own identity on native Hawaiians calling themselves, uh, Hawaiians. Um, so what do we make of that? I mean, do they have a right <laughs> to do that or, um, uh, they're also bicultural, you say, right? That's part of the subtitle. Um, uh, where do you come down on, on, on this, this tricky identity question? I think that nativism is a great term that you're using. I would qualify it in this particular instance in several ways. First of all, you brought up Trask and you're right. And I don't expect, uh, you know, someone who is writing from a native Hawaiian perspective about issues that are of 
critical importance to Native Hawaiians today to care about what a white child might have said 200 years ago. I very much understand that point of view. However, my point is that I'm writing children's history. And if we believe that children, when they're born into this world, deserve equal opportunities and dignity like every other human being, then we can't necessarily say, well, the sins of the father or mother, you know, should fall upon the child. That's not really the way we view children. Um, and so that if that's not the way we want to view fellow human beings, then we probably shouldn't do it in the past to these children either. And so that's why I look at, um, okay, so how did they become this way? And what were the educative mm -hmm. and familial um, you know, factors that allowed them to become racially superior in their thinking towards people that they grew up with. And so those were some of the questions I was looking at from an educated perspective, because I don't believe that just because your parents are a settler, you know, colonialist, that you yourself necessarily are born a settler colonialist in mindset. It has to be taught at some level. And so that was one thing that I was trying to get at. Where is it taught? How is it taught? And are there, are there children that resisted? And that became a fascinating part of the study. The other issue that I would say that arose is this idea of this very idea you're talking about, nativism. But also, if we broaden that a little bit and we talk about citizenship, because under U.S. law, there is a good percentage of these children who are born in the Hawaiian Islands to American parents who under a quirk of the law, which was not corrected until the late 19th century, they were not U.S. citizens. Mm -hmm. They were not Americans. And their parents didn't know that. They didn't know that there was this legal loophole that excluded their children from citizenship. And what they did know was that they didn't want their children taking the oath of allegiance to the Hawaiian monarchy. And the Hawaiian monarchy viewed anyone born on Hawaiian soil to be a subject of the king. And so you have all of these factors at play where the children are born Hawaiian subjects, regardless of whether they take the oath of allegiance. And yet the parents are like, don't take the oath of allegiance. And then the parents are sending them back to the United States to be educated. But technically, they aren't U.S. citizens. And when they go back to the U.S., they aren't treated as U.S. citizens. And it's... It just makes me wonder if you were a child, let's say, you know, you're 10 years old in this situation or 14. And I know concepts of age are different based upon, you know, context. And that's a whole other historical inquiry. But let's just mm -hmm. say you're in your formative years of learning who you are, gaining your identity. These are pretty big questions, um, not knowing what your nationality is, for example, not knowing um, whether or not you're going to ever return to see your parents again. Most children left the Hawaiian Islands to go to American schools thinking they might never see their parents again, and some of them never did. So these are big questions that definitely impact um, your psyche. And I think that from the literature, from the actual primary sources that I looked at, I can show how those formative experiences absolutely manifest themselves later in life as political actions and most dramatically the overthrow of Queen Lili Pulani in 1893. Right. Um, that's towards the end of your of your time frame. Um, so you do cover the, the entire 19th century. I wanted to ask you um, about uh, Punahu School that you mentioned already. Uh, you mm -hmm. have an entire chapter devoted to it, chapter three. Um, and I found that quite interesting in terms of the, the curriculum an emphasis on manual labor. Students called it punahoho uh, ho and temperance <laughs> and um, uh, also it's kind of the, the model then for people like Samuel Chapman Armstrong to, uh, to uh, um, use a similar uh, focus on, on manual labor um, in, in his own uh, school then after the, after the Civil War, the Hampton Institute in Virginia. So can you tell us a little bit more about Punahou, uh, who founded it, um, what was the school like, and what role did it play in socializing the missionary children into, um, uh, into, uh, into particular political views vis-a-vis uh, uh, um, -vis the Hawaiian monarchy? 
Mm-hmm. I think Punahou was critical. Punahou because they had to get up, you know, at the crack of dawn and go hoe the vegetable garden. Um, you know, Punahou was not necessarily funded by the ABCFM. It was land and missionary laborers diverted from what they had been sent to do, or in this case, the land given for in order to provide space for their children to be educated. And so Daniel Dole, Sanford Dole's father, was, and his wife Emily, were sent to the islands to be evangelical missionaries to the native population. And instead the parents said, nope, we're building a building and we're gonna put you in this building and we're gonna send our kids there and would you be their first teachers? And um, so basically parents were fed up with a lack of educational structure for their children in the islands and went about it themselves. So it was very poor, meaning they had to grow their own food. It was supplied by whatever the parents could divert from their other you know, children who were too young to go to school, for example. And um, it's just, yeah, so Punahou had very, very humble beginnings, and yet the curriculum was considered superior to the native schools because it was in English. And there was that traditional Greek and Latin, that classical education that would prepare young boys especially to go to New England seminaries. And um, it, it's just so... I. Okay, so I mean, we we haven't much talked about race theory in the 19th century, but it's just so fascinating to me that you have children who are starving, literally starving. In fact, you know, some of the day scholars who didn't have to board at the school because they lived in Honolulu where the school was, they would go to their lunch boxes at lunch and they would be empty because children had stolen all of their food throughout the morning because they weren't actually getting enough to eat. And none of the parents want to say anything about it because they don't want the school to close. They're so terrified of their children not getting a classical education or having to go to school with native Hawaiians. So you can imagine what some of those discussions in the dorm rooms at night might've been. I mean, I can't Mm -hmm. even imagine going to a school where you're not even fed properly. You have to get up before daylight and you have to work outside until the first star appears in the sky because you are literally growing the food that's going to keep you alive. And then having teachers who, you know, are willing to use corporal punishment and are strict and rigorous in terms of your religious as well as your academic education and having, you know, your parents say this is the best thing that could ever possibly happen to you. It's just a fascinating thought to me. And the letters that are written by the children attest to the fact that they were not that impressed. They were not that enamored by what their parents were forcing them to do and there was bullying and there were problems and um, there was reaction against teachers. But Daniel Dole, the culture that he created as the first principal, you, you see it in the life, the adulthood of his son, and you see it in the other children. He really was teaching and you see it in his own letters. He was teaching those children to be leaders and he said, eventually, The Native Hawaiians are not going to be here anymore, and it's going to be you in their place. And he taught that. And that's not what their parents would have wanted them to be taught, I do not think, um, based upon their own letters. But that is what he taught, and that is the message that was received. And those children grew up, and from Punahou, they established organizations that still exist today to keep the descendants of American missionaries to the Hawaiian Islands connected no matter where they are in the world. And those connections were strong. And those connections in the 1890s became critical to um, the political response to Queen Lilikulani. So I think Punahou is uh, one of the most important pieces in the whole book, to be honest. Right, so it's it's at the center of the book. and an important um, kind of socialization um, uh, institution for for the missionary children. I wanted to end uh, by kind of taking a step back and thinking about children as a subject of historical study. Since you mentioned your your book is, uh, you see yourself in your research as contributing to the history of, of children. Um, and I found it quite fascinating that you um, are trying to, um, uh, um, I think, in, uh, successfully show that children um, exercised 
um, constrained forms of agency early on already during their childhood, adolescence and young adulthood. And this generation of missionary children was quite active um, uh, throughout the 19th century and had a a political force behind them, as we talked about it. But you also uh, write about children being instrumentalized and objectified and Mm -hmm. projected onto. Um, So I I just noted a few um, words that you use to describe children. Uh, You you call them uh, commodities, natural resources, um, an imperial space or a field of empire. So I found that quite interesting to to think about children as not just, you know, human beings, but also um, uh, uh, discursive objects in in some ways for different uh, players. And then um, as they grow into adulthood, into a sort of increased agency, and in particular the white missionary children, um, they can also define themselves and pursue their own political goals. So um, I want you to reflect a little bit more on the on this kind of access to this slice mm-hmm. of American and Hawaiian history through the lens of children. Well, whether the missionaries understood what they were doing or not, and I think ultimately they did, and I think that that comes out in the evidence, at every opportunity for economic or political gain, the missionaries used their children as the example why they needed a political change, why they needed the monarchy to respond to this request or to create a legislature here, to divide up the land and sell it here, to allow you know children to be considered for these positions or those positions. And it's just fascinating how often children become this argument that it's hard to, you know, defeat. It's hard to defeat that children don't need clothing and education and food. But that's exactly Mm -hmm. what the missionaries did when arguing back to the ABCFM that they needed money rather than not being paid, which was what they had been sent out under the assumption that they wouldn't be paid. They're now asking for salaries and then they're asking for more salaries and then they're asking for land. They're asking for the ability to be missionaries and tradesmen missionaries and advisors to the king, missionaries. I mean, so it just goes on and on and it continues. Once you get a little bit, then there's something else that you need. And then there's something else. And then there's something else. And the goalposts keep getting pushed backwards and backwards and backwards. And it's just amazing how children were at the crux of every single argument that led to ultimately American annexation of the Hawaiian Islands. I mean, this isn't just settler colonialism. This is the United States, you know, by a consent of Congress, not even by treaty, taking over a kingdom. And I think that's the tragedy of it is that that story even of itself is so little known by Americans. And when I teach about Queen Liliuokalani and the Hawaiian Islands to my students, they've never heard about it before. And so The missionary children are just one small piece of the overall story, but they are, in my mind, the critical piece to American imperialism. They are that critical piece. I'm not sure that if the missionaries hadn't argued using their children, objectifying in many ways, commodifying their children, using them as a means of exchange, so to speak, with the Hawaiian monarchy, I'm not sure that the outcome would be the same. So I think children are a critical piece, but the larger story really is one of, like you're saying, nativism, settler colonialism. It really is that tragedy of um, a cultural mindset in which you know, there are inferior peoples and superior peoples, and it's based on race, language, and education. And that very much is evident in the story of Hawaii, as it is in many places in the 19th century. Right. And uh, just to add, children also played a role among Native Hawaiians. I remember that the anti-annexation petitions in the 1890s that Noah Noe Silva wrote about uh, were also signed by children Um in some cases. So uh, I found that quite quite interesting as a kind of a counterpoint that, that uh, Native Hawaiians leveraged, you know, familial ties and uh, the entire families, uh, so men, women and children, um, to make a point about 
kind of intergenerational justice against against these settler claims and the the annexation um, overthrown that annexation in in, in the 1890s. Um, Great. Um, so uh, the book was published a few years ago. Um, just wanted to have you reflect a little bit about uh, what uh, what news, what updates happened since it was published, uh, how it was received, anything that you've learned about your subject since uh, 2017. Well, the book has been well received. It's, uh, it won an award for the best book for that year from the Western Historian Association. So I was really glad to receive that recognition from Yeah, congratulations. Thank you. So, uh, you know, it was such a labor of love, but it's also nice to know that, you know, scholars are using it and are um, hopefully thinking about it. But I just had a real desire to just delve into the other side. And I didn't want my career to be limited to children or necessarily to white children. So not that that's what I thought I was doing, but it, you know, it can be perceived that way. And um, so I've been just expanding my research of Polynesia and I actually have my second manuscript that's with the publisher right now, but I am writing about four Queens. We would call them Queens here in the United States, but four female chiefs in Polynesia, 19th century two from mm. Tahiti and two from the Hawaiian kingdom. And I'm taking a look at, you know, female leadership, female power, 19th century colonialism and gender issues. And I just, I am so excited about it. I mean, I just didn't think that I would have another idea after, you know, you have this great idea and you feel mm. like it goes well. And then you're thinking, okay, that's never going to happen again. But I'm just so excited about this second book. And I just hope that I can honor the indigenous history of Tahiti and Hawaii. I'm not, I'm not a native Tahitian or a native Hawaiian, but I want to honor it by saying, look, in 19th century Polynesia, your views of gender were so much more advanced than we even are today. And in some respects in the United States, when you think about um, for the, the fact that we've never had a female president, for example. I mean, it's just amazing. And I just fear that some of that history has been lost because of disease, because of colonialism. And so so that's my next project. And I hope you'll want to read that as well. I, I will definitely want to. That sounds like a great project. Uh, and just to uh, sort of bring it uh, uh, into also my own uh, field of research, I, I study the history of Samoa, and that was just recently in the news, even in the U U.S. kind of mainstream media, because Samoans uh, elected their first female prime minister. Um, but there was controversy over, you know, uh, parliament and the sitting prime minister, uh, a guy who's been in office for over 20 years, um, not really... Um, into that and trying to sort of, you know, uh, throw roadblocks uh, uh, against that. So a history of female leadership in Polynesia sounds like uh, an important project uh, at this at this point. Joy, I want to thank you for being on the show today. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for having me.